0: Everyone and welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that celebrates diversity in front of and behind the camera by looking at overlooked or underappreciated movies, then having a bit of a discussion about their significance. For Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. Our show is featured on Modern Superior home to podcasts such as Weekend at Burgie's and Flight School. Modern Superior recently launched a Patreon page to support the community at large and the creators of the fine shows so please give it a look and see what kind of goodies and bonuses are coming up in the future with our and the other podcast involvement courtney how you hanging in today
1: not too bad it's been a crazy couple of months so i feel like i'm in a weird wind down phase before things ramp up again with the inside out film festival i guess in a week and a half or so
0: our introductions have been kind of uh I guess on a record skip recently for those, for similar reasons, I've been extremely out of it, which listeners may be able to pick up on at this point. i uh, had to go to the ER last week and everything's kosher, but it uh, threw my sleep schedule horribly out of whack. Courtney is, I am sure this is something that you have related to for far longer than myself.
1: With a, a, two young kids in the house, it's, I, I don't know what sleep is anymore. <laughs> I go to bed really late, I wake up really early for work, so I, 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 have, I got a Fitbit recently, and you know how, I guess it tracks your sleep as part of it, and it tells you what your recommended sleep is, and my routine sleep is, is horrible.
0: I am still unaware of what Fitbits actually do. Um, if you were to try and sell me on it, what would you say?
1: My purpose is for basically tracking my steps because we have like a little walking challenge going on at work. So it tracks body movement and tries to encourage you to get up from your sitting, especially if you're in an office, start moving around, just being a lot more active. And part of that activity, depending on which type of Fitbit you get, some will check your heart rate. Some will be like a watch, I don't know, maybe a cell phone, the way how technology is going. I don't know. But the one that I have, (laughs) basically, it tracks your steps, it tells you how far you've you've walked on a given day, and it also will track your sleep at night.
0: So it's kind of like a passive-aggressive robotic exercise partner. Exactly. Well, interesting. I have been busy with the exact opposite of Fitbit Edge, partly because of the ER stuff. Can't stop the movies. My website is continuing full steam ahead having a lot of fun writing about stuff i actually have four good movies in a row this last week one of which suicide squad i know is up for a lot of debate as to whether it's good or not but i loved it
1: yeah we're gonna have to talk about that at some point
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i know that we'll have to do bonus stuff for modern superior and the patreon at some point so listeners if that's something that you would want to hear Check out the Patreon. Maybe you will get me and Courtney at each other's throats on Suicide Squad.
1: You know, and that would be an actually a very interesting one to talk about, especially in regards to diversity in cinema. So I would actually be willing to sit through that film again <laughs> for for the for, for the Patreon folks
0: and i i would not need to be willing i enjoyed it quite a bit it would actually just be my third viewing and my previous two were within 24 hours of each other so i am that person at this point
1: we are seem to be at very opposite ends of the scale when it comes to dc movies i can't remember your stance on the marvel ones i know we're definitely at Oz with suicide squad and if i remember correctly batman v superman
0: i think the batman v superman uh and and i guess this is getting to uh Behind the podcast conversations, dear listeners, I think with Batman v Superman, it was more of a intellectual disagreement. As far as Marvel's concerned, uh, and I guess this would also apply to listeners if maybe they want to torture me via Patreon, but I have put a total embargo on reviewing any more Marvel Studios movies. I'm very specific there, Marvel Studios. (laughs) Not the division that does the X-Men movies or anything like that, but anything that's part of the Cheryl Marvel-verse, because I hate it. It's been going on for so long with so many bland results that the last time I gave things an earnest shot, it was Guardians of the Galaxy, which I hated after the first 30 minutes.
1: Well, I guess I won't uh, mention that I saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2 this past weekend. We'll skip over that for now.
0: Boy, I'm glad you didn't mention that movie I I know nothing about (laughs) that I don't have embargoes with. (laughs) But at the beginning of each episode, after some gentle ribbing as you were just privy to, we like to talk about two short films that have a bit to do with our overall subject. This month, we've been doing uh, LGBTQ movies in honor of the Inside Out Festival. Courtney, what's your short like, and why did you pick it?
1: The short I picked this week is called Roxanne by Paul Frankel, and it's a film that apparently actually played the Inside Out Film Festival back in 2015. Um, I wasn't at the festival at that time, so I completely missed it. But it's a... I don't know how to even describe it. It's a... I guess it's an interesting short about a transgendered sex worker who befriends a young girl that, I guess, lives in her building complex or the building next door. And it's basically about these two people who are alone and isolated in their own ways. The sex worker, partly because of the lifestyle that she leads and her sexuality has, I guess, caused a rift between her and her sister. And the young girl whose mother doesn't seem to be the best of mothers and it's very... Neglectful. Uh, I can't remember if we really get too deep into the mother, but anyway, it's about well, these two individuals <laughs> coming together, and I don't want to give it the hooker with the heart of gold branding because I think it will make this film seem fluffy. I found it just a really engaging drama that I guess is a little heartwarming towards the end. You know, it's basically about this budding friendship between the two. And I don't know if there was something about it that captured me. It's not radically different in terms of like style or anything. Uh, it was, I think it was the, the performances and then the way that Frankel just lets the, the story kind of unfold and play really just kind of hit me.
0: Well, I'm with you on not labeling this like one of those hooker with a heart of gold stories, because one of the things that really surprised me about Roxanne was just how erotic the (laughs) non-child-caring parts of the movie were. We would be having an entirely different discussion if the uh, child-caring parts were also erotic, but Lolita does exist. But with Roxanne, you're prepped for that kind of erotic charge before the images really catch up to you, because there's that thumping on the soundtrack and The disconnected images of Roxanne, played by Miss Cairo, which is an awesome name, going to the club, hooking up with clients, taking them back to her apartment, and repeating the process. Miss Cairo, as Roxanne, she projects so much confidence in her poise, and as she's getting dressed up, dressed down, going out to run... One thing that stirred the pot of that confidence was when she's taking care of Lily in the morning and they're having a little conversation. Roxanne is leaning against the counter, but she still has her back kind of arched and kind of accentuating her legs a bit. And I love the way that she was carrying herself there. And that extends to everything else that happens in Roxanne. Amusingly and somewhat threateningly, too, when Roxanne saves Lily from two pimps, Roxanne more or less beats the crap out of them very quickly. So that's what caught me, was how confident and kind of erotic it was. And then the the, the down-home sweetness with those scenes with just Roxanne and Lily.
1: I like that you touched on the confidence because I thought Miss Cairo did a really good job. Like, there's, there's something about her performance and the way how she exudes that confidence, but yet there's still vulnerability in certain scenes that really had me kind of captivated as I was as watching this film. And I also loved the use of Color in this film, especially with the reds and blues of the club, and then there was times when Roxanne is home alone, and you get that kind of soft white as she's just sitting on the bed, reflecting on her life. But then that white's also used when she's with clients, so it's not like an angelic kind of moment. But it's just the the contrast, the color contrast was interesting. And then there's a scene where she's taking off her makeup and talking to Lily and the whole room has that kind of red blue tinge right so you know she's coming from that sex worker world and transforming to I guess normal life for that day and I thought that was captivating as well
0: well that brings up another good point about the confidence of Roxanne both the movie and the character it presents her as someone who doesn't need to be saved. It's another reason I'm happy that this doesn't belong in that hooker with a heart of gold. Because too often sex workers are presented and treated like people who need to be saved. While it would be in a huge discussion otherwise if, you know, sex work should be protected, I'm in the camp that it definitely should be. And if that's really healthy or not, and for that, for me, it's a case by case situation. But with Roxanne, I get the sense throughout it that this is part of her choice. It's part of what she does, what kind of person she is. It's a nice change of pace to see, you know, a, a trans sex worker being the one doing the rescuing instead of having some outside force come in and needing to normalize Roxanne or help roxanne uh, put roxanne back up on solid ground or anything like that roxanne is solid enough as she is and doesn't need saving (laughs) and that's just so refreshing and i loved it for the other reasons we talked about but that was a nice little twist of the hooker storyline stuff too
1: yeah, that's a very good point, because there's at no point, I guess, outside of when she's chatting with the, the two thugs, pimps, whatever, um, that there's there's no point in this film where someone comes and chastises her for what she's doing or who she is. She just exists. And she is the hero of this film, which is, as you said, something that we do rarely see. So that's, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that little aspect to it.
0: Well, there you go. Maybe my uh, medications are making me think a little better than normal. (laughs) Do
1: you want to talk about the film that you picked this week? Because I I was really taken with that one.
0: Oh, excellent. Uh, I was as well, (laughs) which I would certainly hope is the case, Uh, which I think is the second week in a row I've said that, so I'm going to start running a list of phrases for Andrew to avoid. But in any event, my short is called Silly Girl. Uh, It was directed by Hope Dixon Leach, and when I was searching the internet for... Um, short movies, I really wanted to pick something about trans individuals. Because as I mentioned with our podcast last week on Pariah and Such, I'm not as educated as I want to be. So instead of being lazy, (laughs) I decided to go out and try and educate myself. I found that a lot of the trans shorts that I found, it was a lot of internal monologue stuff as different trans individuals. We're going through their lives and their inner monologue about they need to wait for this person to get out of the bathroom or what they're doing at this doctor's office or so on. While it was interesting for perspective, from a filmmaking standpoint, I was really bored by them. So I kept searching, and then I stumbled upon Silly Girl, which is a riff kind of on that self-monologue thinking as a trans person, but kind of like a loop in time sort of thing, and I'm interested to see what you think actually about the interaction, because there's a trans man, Joel, who is nervous and had sort of a breakup, or an alluded to breakup that we see briefly on his phone, and he goes walking and runs into who we think is his past self, Joanne, when he was a she. This is where I get a little... Intrigued about what happened. It's part self fulfilling prophecy, as Joel tells Joanne, you know, I remember when you vomited, and <laughs> Joanne vomits over the shoes of this girl that likes her, Lisa. But it also made me think that this was Joel giving advice to a girl that also just seemed familiar to him, not necessarily him. Like, I could see the conversation easily being between Joel and his past self and Joel with a girl who just happened to indulge him in this weird conversation. I love it, and I'm a little all over the place with it mentally, so I'm glad that you're taken with it. Why were you taken with it?
1: I love the approach, and for me, I took it as Joel is talking to his past self, because he's, he's going back to the spot where, as a young girl, whenever he was feeling bad, that was a spot he would go to. And the film essentially starts on a sad note, because Joel's been dumped, meets his old self, who... Is also had an interaction at school that she's bothered with. Then when you get Lily enter the picture, or sorry, Lisa, Lily's in the the previous short, Uh, when Lisa, (laughs) when Lisa enters the picture and then you've got that whole budding romance and the film ends on a, I would say hopeful note, but it's hopeful to the end, even though we know it's going to at some point loop back around to that sad beginning so it's like sad hopeful back to sad and that i found that really intriguing like i I would love to see more of these type of films where you see it like at at different stages and you see the progression and this how the different relationships impact the joel that we see today but just from a structure standpoint i I really love
0: this film for me the hope comes from him trying to convince his younger self and maybe we could Put it as a stand-in, broaden it, you know, just try and convince young people in general. Your gender is made up with words. It's more complicated than anyone could possibly imagine, especially when we're getting into trans rights. So, like I said, (laughs) my mind's all over the place on this one.
1: I agree that you can look at it as him encouraging the younger generation to just be comfortable with who you are and ignore the weight of the words, and I and I do think that that's a message that is conveyed through the film. But I think also that this particular instance in his life was a very important one for him. This moment when he, as a young child, was able to puke on this girl's shoes and the girl still was interested in him which in itself means she's a keeper right there but <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a side note but you know he had that moment or that experience when he was younger and we're led to believe at least it was hopefully it turned out a possible, and at least helped set the path for the road he traveled down on allows him being dumped by texts to not be as devastating as it might have been had he not had That experience when he was younger, you know, that awkwardness that we all kind of have when you're first getting into a romantic relationship, especially at a young age.
0: Oh, yeah, I was I was a teenager when I had my first kiss. So uh, I I completely understand that awkwardness. And it kind of goes to what I was saying last week. And you were echoing with how Pariah and its specificity ends up being kind of universal without losing that specificity. When you have a lover and they have gotten sick like that, that is kind of a make-or-break moment. While I wish that that would have turned out maybe a little... I kind of wanted to see some of the after effects, but maybe that was just to kind of assuage my own... Uh, teenage awkward self to see. Okay, yeah. On the other half, it, it it did work out okay, at least for a little bit. But I think that silly girl works on that pariah level. That you know, by being so specifically about this trans man thinking about his past as a girl, trying to comfort himself over a text breakup from someone who prefers women, and I, I like that that gender. Whoever it is that sent the text, but that's kept unclear too. It aids that whole, you know, gender fluidity.
1: The director of this film, I guess, her—I want to say it's her feature film debut, but she had a film I, which I didn't realize until after watching this that was at TIFF last year called *The Leveling*. And I remember hearing great things about that film. Dave Voit, who uh, was the editor in chief at um, *In the Seats*, which is a site I contribute to, he loved the film like the leveling i remember he was talking about all week during tiff so i didn't put uh, two and two together similar to uh sarah dina smith is only after seeing midnight swim that was, it clicked in my brain oh wait she had a film at the film festival last year so it's good to see a lot of these filmmakers taking big leaps
0: And once again, your film festival knowledge has given us a potential idea for a future episode. So I'm very happy that you enjoyed *Silly Girl*, and maybe we'll check out some more of Hope Dixon Leech's work in the future.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely interested to uh, see what else she's doing.
0: On that note of moving on to other movies, we're gonna take a quick break to change some reels, and then we will be back to discuss the 1991 documentary *Paris Is Burning*. Welcome back to Changing Reels. Today we are finishing up our month of LGBTQ movies in honor of the Inside Out Festival with the 1990 documentary Paris is Burning, directed by Jenny Livingston and featuring a variety of streetwalkers, drag performers, queens, judges, lots of different folks in this one, you name it, they probably appear enjoying the club and drag and vogue and shade lifestyles, which, folks, <laughs> a lot of different terms in this movie, so I'm going to be doing my best to keep up with them. I've watched Paris is Burning. This is going to be my third time. It is a delight. With Paris is Burning, we see modern DNA influences, obviously with RuPaul's Drag Race, another show I've enjoyed greatly. Courtney, why'd you pick Paris is Burning?
1: Despite the raves that this film has received, I only actually watched it for the first time maybe about a month and a half ago. It was a film that I had always heard about, and there was a period of time where I was getting this film confused with Paris, Texas, (laughs) uh, which was another one that I had not seen uh, and I kept kept hearing about. And then I eventually saw Paris, Texas for the first time last year. I know some cinephiles are shaking their heads, but we can't see everything. And I was actually really taken by this film. It was... I literally just popped it on Netflix because it was on. I was like, "Okay, let me just check it out to see what all the fuss was about." I found myself kind of giddy after watching it, and I don't know if that's the correct response for this type of film because this film touches on a lot of serious issues, but it's done in such a engaging way that I just fell in love with like all the individuals that are featured in this film and you know, reading up on some of them afterwards or a fair number of the main People featured meet tragic ends in in their life, but for this moment in time when they're captured on film, the whole ball culture, the humor, the wits, the confidence, the style, all of it works so well. And the film just plays. I think it's like an hour and 15 minutes, if that it just flew by. So when we were thinking of films to discuss, I was originally thinking of, well, maybe doing an Xavier Dolan film and cause I'm a big fan of his as well. But I kept coming back. I'm like, you know, I want, I want to watch that film again. I want to see if it was just a one time caught in the glow. while I still have that same effect watching it for the second time. And yeah, I still love this film.
0: And what you're talking about there with leaving giddy and not really sure if that's the appropriate feeling, I get that. Because there was a movie I was thinking of picking in Pariah's Place last time, which was uh, John Cameron Mitchell's short bus. At the very end, there is a scene where the drag queen that we see performing throughout sings, everybody gets it in the end, while everyone starts having lots and lots of sex, kind of as a way of both embracing everyone's mortality and also finding cause to orgasmically celebrate in the meantime. So it's both heavy and extremely uplifting at once. Throughout a lot of Paris is Burning, I feel that same thing. This time I felt really sad watching a lot of it, like especially stories of the uh, various performers And their run ins with their mothers and fathers, because there's that one heartbreaking story where the man is caught by his father, goes home, and dad says to mom, Your son is a woman. And just seeing his face transition from being happy that he's being interviewed to this gut wrenching recollection of what happened after his mom told, I'm sorry, after his dad told his mom that and how. His mom kind of started criticizing the way he dressed as a woman, like how coats weren't meant for him. And there's a very humorous part in the movie where we talk about certain coats were meant for certain locations, but there's a lot more of those... Kind of gut punch moments in Paris is burning than I remembered from previous because I was so caught up in the glam and the walk and the voguing that it made those rougher parts go down smoother but it was really hard for me to ignore this time.
1: Yeah, and this film, it talks about homophobia in an honest way. It, uh, there's a lot of talk of racism. Poverty is a huge thing in this film because a lot of the individuals that they follow are struggling financially. And through all of this, a lot of them just want to be famous to kind of make it big. And one of my favorite moments, I think it was... um I think it was Doreen Corey when she was talking about how there was a time when she she just wanted fame. But she says, like, you know, you don't have to bend the whole world, pay your dues and enjoy it. Right. You know, which is a a really deep way of saying, do what you love for as long as you can. Moments like that, that just really resonated. And I feel you on the sadness, because especially with people like Angie Extravaganza and a few others, when you get further into their stories and what happens to them. It is a touching film, but then it's nicely balanced with great moments of humor. Like when one of the characters is trying to sew his costume, which I guess is just like a tank top or something <laughs> yes. it was taking them well i can't remember how many hours it was taking him, and and the person on screen was like that should not take you more than an hour for a tank top little moments like that where you see the community the sense of family and i think that's also one of the things i loved is like the the humorous look but it's at the end of the day a lot of them in their own little fractions are family they look out for each other so when you have the two 13-year-olds out at two in the morning, which is something that you really don't want to see, but you get the sense that the people in that area are looking out for them. You know, no one's going to harm those kids, or at least you hope no one's going to harm for them. That whole sense of the house mothers and helping the ones who've been kicked out of their homes rise up and get stable, that just really spoke to me.
0: When I was joking a little earlier with uh, your short, Roxanne, and how it might have taken a completely different approach if it was Lolita-esque, That's one of those moments that could have edged into the uncomfortable territory, but that doesn't happen. It's this kind of older generation. There's a lot of this in the movie. The older generation trying to gently guide and coach the younger generation on what to do and how to act and what rules are applicable where and basically creating that safe space for them to just be themselves. Which, and you never get that sense with the kids, the, you know, the 13, I think the 16 year old that you see at night. You know, that's a far cry removed from one of the trans women who had breast implants and is basically feeding them to passerbys willy nilly. And it's that safe celebration of the body. The two kids, or the two teenagers, however you want to put it, they have a safe space to celebrate themselves that they know they're not going to be taking advantage of. That same safe space is completely different for the woman who is exposing herself and letting people suck on her breasts, because that's her safe space. She's setting the rules. It's that kind of examination of just what is safe, you know, what is acceptable. It's completely different from scenario to scenario, but it's always buoyed by that manufactured family, we're all going to love each other here, but there are going to be rules sets.
1: A lot of that safe space, and I love the term that you said, celebrating the body, that gets reflected in the ball scenes. As the film goes on, you realize that there's categories for everything so that you know regardless yeah, of your age, shape, body type, you have a chance of winning award at the ball. I even love that stuff like executive realness where you know you're strutting in your business suit and you're doing your best business serious business walk and then you have like the town and country folks, the military folks. I forget some of the other terms but like you know the the woman who exudes the the most confidence, the woman who exudes the, the schoolgirl charm. There's a category for everything and they take the ball very seriously, but at the same time you never feel that it's hate or they're shaming each other. It's just it's pure love. But when you're there you you gotta treat it with respect.
0: Yeah, even the shade and that explanation is a bit of information. I somehow missed on previous things that there is a a difference between throwing shade and voguing. But I I love that Paris's Burning manages to be instructional in that way without coming across as boring. One of the things that bugs me is when people just stand there and deliver exposition. Like, you could actually have the people doing something while they're delivering this exposition. And when the explanations come in Paris is Burning, they're not just a talking head, you know, a la Errol Morris, sitting there, you know, with some nice music playing, talking about this thing and its history and such. No, like, we're watching the history being created at these balls. And even if it's temporary, like, I think that one of the drag queens that we spend the most time with, Dorian Corey, Uh, One of her final words, and, and I love this so, so much, was when she's talking about what it means to make it, and she just says, you know, if a few people remember your name, then you've made your mark. You know, I think it's better to just enjoy it. What we're witnessing is literally history being created, and considering the importance and kind of debate that sprung up on Paris's burning in the long run with bell hooks weighing in on top of others it doesn't lose its edge we're probably going to feel differently about it depending on who's watching the movie that created history it sits with that created family vibe really well
1: I wanted to definitely dive into some of the criticism in a moment. But one thing I also thought about while watching this film is how much the culture has been appropriated. Because now, again, having only seen this film this year, and although I knew where Vogue came from, watching it again just reminded me of how big madonna was in terms of how she used vogue to make millions on her tours and whatnot like with like with the dancers and just appropriating that for the time that she needed and then she doesn't really talk about that anymore and even the term throwing shade which i feel is only in the limit of the last five years really become like very mainstream, where you'll see reputable publications talking about well, the celebrity <laughs> through yeah, shade, right. at, you know, and it's a term that's been around for a while, but now and it's become so mainstream that I doubt people even think of where it like originated. And the difference between throwing shade and reading someone, those little moments where they still stand the test of time. In prepping for this show, I just decided to look at some of the critical response. And you mentioned bell hooks, and I did see that pop up in terms of the depiction of drag balls and how they turn things into a spectacle and kind of dilutes the importance and the race that's implied with this film. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I I can see that argument. I don't know. I always felt that Livingston treated these subjects with respect and didn't try to make fun of them as much as like as i said it left me giddy it was a positive way like i didn't walk away looking down at any of these individuals i was more happy to be even you know be allowed into their world for a few hours and really get to learn about them
0: what what you're saying there about how a lot of this stuff has been appropriated into mainstream culture and totally with you on shade being a thing that has sprouted up over the last few years kind of being used everywhere But there was an episode with Hillary Clinton doing a cameo on Broad City last year, and when she walks on and the two girls in the lead explode with joy, and then there's a lot of, you know, gas queens. Those are not words I would associate ever with Hillary Clinton. For better or worse, and I think I'd ultimately argue worse, you know, I did vote for Clinton both in the primaries, I would definitely change that now, but then also the general election and for the few positive points that she has, you know, that kind of exuberance and that kind of excitement about celebrating your body and full view of everyone actually willing to go to bat for, you know, your trans, your gay, your queer, you know, your neighbors that don't fit into any specific box and love them as they are. It's weird watching Paris is Burning Again and then thinking of that episode, because that means all of the stuff that we see, all the shade, all the voguing, has helped a lot of white women make their names and I know that Broad City of course has their own writers and their own thing but the way they use Clinton and the screen kind of again exploding with her winks I didn't like it much to begin with and now talking to you and thinking about it in context with some of the criticisms of Paris is Burning and the way that the language and mannerisms have been appropriated I think I may hate it who knows how I'll feel in the morning, but I don't think the criticisms are too far off. But I think it's one of those things that the criticisms maybe are, are more valid as time has passed. And then Hook's initial issues and some of the criticisms at the time were a warning of things to come. Thinking about some of the criticisms for
1: this film, my mind was kind of drifting to Chappelle for when the Chappelle show was really popular. And I remember in one of the interviews, he was talking about how he was hearing certain young people use terms uh, that he had echoed on the show in terms of like satire and he was trying to make a point with some of his skits and the point was completely being missed they were taking like all the things that you you really shouldn't be taking and and kind of clinging to that and making that his own and how appropriation is so easily come by nowadays like i know up here in canada there was a big news story i think about earlier this week um about a journalist who in one of his Articles, I guess, for this writer's guild was talking about having like an appropriation. Prize, you know, they would reward the the white writer who writes about a culture or in a, or write something in the eyes of a culture that they know nothing about, and that caused a huge firestorm of things. Because especially a lot of prominent people jumped on that bandwagon, and some of them will argue, "Well, oh, it was just a joke or what have you." But it was really hurtful for a lot of people, especially because it was primarily geared towards the indigenous community, and it just set off a huge firestorm. It kind of sparked the whole debate between free speech and cultural appropriation. And, you know, there are two different things, but people who are championing the appropriation aspect of it, trying to argue it under the guise of free speech and just one of those things that still resonates today. We we see it everywhere in our culture. I can definitely see Hook's criticisms. I'm not discrediting that whatsoever. I just for me watching it, I didn't look at it through those eyes. And maybe I'm wrong for not seeing that way, but I didn't look at them making fun of or cheapening a culture.
0: That also goes to some of the other background stuff, because I I guess Livingston had paid some of the folks in the documentary to be on the documentary. I know that's a big no-no when it comes to journalism, and the sources would then be more likely to give you the information you're angling for. Documentaries, to me, when I get into conversations about whether they're truthful or honest or whatever, they're really not that far removed from fiction. I mean, Paris is Burning is more alive and interested in the lives of the people that Livingston focuses on than than a majority of fiction out there. And considering the financial hardships everyone is under, and we see these, we see the conditions of the homes and the apartments, And some people have it a little easier. I think that Dorian's apartment with her cats was both very adorable and a little character building moment, but then, you know, also the folks who have to get on the street and make their money or have their small bedrooms and such. In a way, it would almost feel like more irresponsible to me for Livingston to just shoot her stuff and then say good luck to the rest of y'all. Criticism on this one is nice and complicated. This one was, if anything,
1: like a, a good discussion starter on many issues and the fact that the ideal especially in this time for a lot of the characters in the film was essentially white upper middle class the few who want to be like i guess the one percent what have you but that was even a little disturbing and i guess it also speaks to the impoverished environment that they were living in they're trying to achieve this fantasy that you would look and go well that's just middle class
0: Well, there's that great moment when one of the drag queens is talking about the ideal beauty throughout the ages and how much she had adored Lena Horne when everyone wanted to look like Marilyn Monroe. For me, I'm not, I guess, picky between the two one way or the other, but you can't put Stormy Weather next to Diamonds are a girl's best friend in my book. I'm gonna go to Stormy Weather every time, every time, every time. But that is something that runs through it, and you kind of see that in the background too, when we get some glimpses at some of the modeling jobs some of the queens and girls are able to get, and we see the pictures posted up on the wall, and they're are very few non-white people on the wall. The interviewee there, she talks about how everyone's got their unique look and how they're all beautiful and then we look at the wall and it's like there's just really not that many people that look like you there. But then I guess that also opens up the question of what makes you happy with that mortality vibe that's also running through Paris's burning echoed by the ending sentiments from Dorian. If this makes them happy get out of their business. You know, leave them the hell alone.
1: It's funny because I was on a um, podcast recently, Tump, the T-U-M-P, and I guess it's an acronym for the Unnamed Movie podcast, although I don't think they even use that anymore. I think they just go by Tump. But anyway, we were talking about I'm Not Your Negro, which is a documentary that I really enjoyed and it got varying reviews on the show. But one of the things I remember from that film is when James Baldwin is talking about how black people essentially just want to be left alone and live their life. Right. Cause he was talking in relation to white fear because the whole film was about race relations in America that always kind of stuck out to me. And I was thinking about that watching this film again they just want to live their life but they want to do it and be successful just like everyone else and be able to have this thing so even when they like the news crews and stuff start coming in towards the end of the film and oh look at this look at this ball culture it almost felt weird because like why why do we need to exploit it you know from a, a news perspective let's just let them do their thing
0: yeah and while you were talking about baldwin and the modern day stuff that's what puts Paris's Burning in such a unique place because As a movie and just part of cinema history overall, for me it's absolutely essential. It's a super entertaining, super interesting look at the lives of people that I don't normally have contact with. So it's very instructive in that way. But then in terms of it being, I guess, a defining movie for LGBTQ communities overall, that's where it feels like I owe it both to... Paris is Burning and those communities to kind of see more about those effects that we've been talking about for a lot of cinema goers. Is that healthy for a lot of them? I feel like I've been chasing my tail a lot these past 30 minutes or so.
1: No, but it's a good point because there are a lot of times when a work of cinema gets elevated to the point where a lot of the meaning and message gets diluted. People start thinking certain things are cool and miss the whole point of, or at least the statement that the the filmmakers were trying to make. So it is a very interesting question, and it'll be interesting to see how this film continues to age and what new generations of viewers think of it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's something that we have a responsibility to, to just see how it's impacted and as it moves forward. I've watched it three times, so I'm sure I'll watch it again to see how the culture and the communities have responded to it over time. I thought this was a excellent pick, and I think this is the uh, quote-unquote deepest we've gone with our podcast so far. We went...
1: Pretty deep, I think, with Beyond the Lights at
0: one point. If anything, that we've got a good track record of deep conversations involving movies that might otherwise be seen as fluff. So, I guess to wrap things up, Courtney, where can folks get a hold of you?
1: They can... Get a hold of me at our Twitter account, chain, at Changing Reels AC, or can contact me directly on Twitter at Small
0: Mind. I've been writing a lot at Can't Stop the Movies. Ton of stuff coming up there in terms of uh, video game writing and ongoing cinema stuff. You could also check my Twitter out at Can't Stop Drew. Or you could go to our Gmail account, uh, changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. We want to hear from you, potential Patreon subscribers. You know ways to potentially torment me as well if you want to hear ideas for Modern Superior bonus stuff. Anything you want to leave us off with, Courtney?
1: For all those who have been listening to our show, especially the last couple, we got great responses for the Korean cinema. You know, just go on iTunes and give us a, a rating. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know if you appreciate what we're doing.
0: Love that we've had such a great response from the creators as well. It just goes to show, uh, especially the messages we received from uh, Sunghee Kim and the Halsell Brothers. We talked about Mirror in Mind and If I Had a Heart the last two episodes. That criticism and discussion and creation, they all go hand in hand. They're not just on the internet, raw, angry voices. I've loved hearing from them. So until next time, we hope to keep the positive vibes flowing. I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.